welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, we are recording. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bronovo Podcast. I'm here this week with Dr. Nikki Blacksmith. Uh, Dr. Blacksmith holds a Doctor of Philosophy, a PhD in Industrial Organizational Psychology. That's how we met. Uh, she was my professor back in the day. And uh, today, as a scientist practitioner, uh, Dr. Blacksmith runs Blackhawk Behavioral Science, which is a firm that integrates industrial psychology and helps, um, I'll give my assessment of it, uh, venture capitalists and, and entrepreneurs to assess the relative strengths and weaknesses that they bring to the table as uh, as business partners. So, Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. For sure. We were just uh, just chatting about uh, big picture life, you know, values, priorities, perspectives, all that, uh, which we talk about a lot in the show. But I guess with you and your your chosen path of research and you know you, higher education, as far as your background and how you got into that space, even deciding to go pursue higher, higher education, you know, what led you down that path originally? Well, <laughs> that's kind of a long story. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, okay. So I've always wanted to be a psychologist. That was a, very obvious to me um, in high school. And so I started uh, as a psychology undergrad major and I started getting involved in research um, they put me on a, I was in a, a research lab doing research on, um, what's it called, uh, prenatal depression. <laughs> and so they was sent me to the hospital to recruit individuals who were um, pregnant and depressed. And I sat in the waiting room and talked to individuals and it was so sad. <laughs> I was like, I cannot <laughs> yeah. do this. Sounds I'm tough. out. Yeah, it was, it was like, I, I don't have the capacity to <laughs> take this on every day. Um, so I switched over and started doing uh, research in social psychology. Um, and I was doing some decision-making research, which is kind of funny because I'll circle back to that like, but um, later in my life. But I just didn't get it. Like, they were doing really cool gambling studies and learning about like how people make decisions. But I kept like asking like, okay, now what, like, what do you do with this information? Like, how is this useful? Um, and the only real option for me in that career was to go into academics. And at that point in my life, I was not ready or I didn't think I could do it or I didn't want to do it. I mean, I don't really remember, but there was a professor that came to talk to uh, the psychology department from the business department. And he was actually an industrial organizational psychologist. Mm -hmm. And he started talking about how they apply psychology and they use it in the real world. And I was like, that sounds so cool. Sign me up right away. Uh, and I applied for some programs. And next thing you know, is moving to North Carolina um, and never been there before. <laughs> Just kind of like took a leap of faith and figured, you know, I've never taken a class in this, but it sounds really cool. I know myself well, so here we go. Um, and while I was there, um, they were actually uh, transitioning that program that I was in. It was, a, it was a very prestigious master's program, but they were transitioning it to a uh, 
PhD organizational sciences program. So they basically treated me like I was a PhD student. Um, and I was involved in a lot of research. I ended up publishing my thesis. Um, and I did do some applied work and some consulting while I was there. Um, but I, I really just fell in love with the research. My, I had two professors that just made it so much fun. And they, nice. you know, like, it was always just so interesting, like, asking questions and, you know, trying to find the answers and digging deeper. And, um, you know, it, I really loved it. Um, I wasn't quite confident enough, though, I don't think in myself that I could do a PhD. So I ended up going uh, into like consulting, external consulting. I worked at Gallup for a little while. And those professors, they were always, you know, encouraging me and championing me and egging me on and telling me like, I can't not get a PhD. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, I'm just for them. Um, cause I did end up feeling a little bit bored after a while. Like, okay, you can apply this stuff, but like, I want to dig deeper. I want to think higher level and, and, you know, um, not just apply the same, you know, consulting projects over and over again, just to different clients. Um, so I actually went back and got my PhD, um, mostly because it was like a trial and error, just me realizing like, I can't live without it. Like I have to do it. <laughs> and, um, I ended up back, um, at GW getting my PhD. Um, and then I, studied industrial organizational psychology with a real strong emphasis on understanding like what makes people different than one another, their personality, cognitive ability, um, and really strong into the uh, measurement side of things. So psychometrics and understanding how do you measure a psychological uh, phenomenon when you can't see or touch it. Um, So that was always fascinating to me. Somehow I got involved in some decision-making research because they, the field of like uh, cognitive psychology or behavioral economics, they were measuring some intuitive decision-making. And I was really fascinated by the measurement tool. And so I ended up actually going, um, doing my postdoc on like social decision-making type of research, um, cognitive psychology, social psychology, um, at the Army Research Institute. It was really funny because one day after I published a paper, I got an email from my professor at Iowa that I had taken, <laughs> that I had done research oh, wow. in the lab, and I had not spoken to him since. Um, and I was just like, wow, that's so cool how things, like, circle back. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that was my journey. So he saw your research and was like, hey, like, Nikki, you legend, yeah. what's up? <laughs> was so sad. He shared it with his undergrad or research students at that time. I guess there were probably some PhD students in there. Um, and was like, hey, this is an alumni from the lab. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Because I honestly, I'd not, I would not have like expected to hear from him. But I, mm-hmm. I was I was uh, really flattered and, and surprised. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I, I want to get into you know, your path, I guess, postdoc and how you started Blackhawk versus research. But you mentioned something in that was kind of interesting that you really knew yourself well at a young age. And in my estimation, in our society, if more people knew themselves deeply, it would be a better place. So 
how did you develop that, you know, just on a more personal level? Cause there might be people listening who want to do that kind of self-discovery, but don't know where to start. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think I am extremely rare in that case. I'd actually had a, a close friend of mine call me up the other day and he was transitioning jobs and just feeling like he didn't really know which direction he wanted to go. I was feeling really lost. And I was like, I am so sorry, but I'm probably the one person in the world that cannot relate to that. <laughs> I have no idea what to say to you. <laughs> because I've been so, like, my entire life, I've just known myself really well. And I think it started when I was really young. I just um, really loved writing. And so I got a lot of journals as presents from family members. And mm-hmm. just really explored my self-identity and like asked myself questions and interviewed myself and thought about the future. And it was just like constantly journaling. Um, I really started out in my life wanting to be a writer, which I will say to this day, I still want to do that. And I consider myself a writer. I just don't write fiction books like I thought I was going to, but I do still do a lot of writing. Um, but it's a really interesting story. Uh, so when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to write a fiction book when I grow up. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but I know that like, cause I, I was really, really into like literature and everything. I was like, I can't be a good writer until I've like lived a life and actually have something to say. Right. So I've got to just like, you know, like being a fiction writer is not going to be my career. It will be something that I, you know, do when I have something to, to share with the world. Um, and so I wrote myself a lot of letters and like in my journals, like dear future Nikki, <laughs> you know, like giving myself, a <laughs> I was going to save them until I was like old and, um, you know, then reopen them. And about two years ago, my parents, um, moved into a different house. So they're like, you need to get rid of all your boxes of crap that you, you have stored at our house. And mm-hmm. it was basically just like a box of all of my, all my journals. And I started opening them and reading through them. And wow. it was just so interesting, like looking back and there was things like, you know, I asked questions like, what do I want out of life? And then I would like wow. list things down. And that's awesome. There, it was really crazy. And what's even crazier is, I was reading this one entry. It was about my psychology class and I do not remember this at all. So like, thank goodness I wrote it down because it just kind of made me giggle, but I had taken a personality test and thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. And I was like, I really want to build these personality tests when I, you know, grow up and become someone. And actually that's what I do now. I build personality tests in (laughs) somewhere. My younger self was just so in tune to, to what I thought was, interesting and exciting and here i am <laughs> nice so I love writing self-reflection person. writing journaling yeah a lot of reflection a lot of reflection um and asking and interviewing yourself almost because sometimes we're afraid to admit things to ourselves and so just like getting real honest with yourself i, I suppose is what I would awesome suggest. sweet thank you mm-hmm. okay so then you're on this path you have degree in hand PhD you have the options now you can do research or you can go out you know into the into practice and you ended up going the latter route um, and and we were talking about that before the interview and I asked you about censorship in academia because it's something that is really interesting to me like the idea that on paper universities are places of inquiry and research and discussion and 
it's not really supposed to be about right and wrong necessarily. It's more establishing some facts or empirical evidence from which we can draw conclusions and make assessments. And, you know, from my understanding of it, what's happening at a lot of universities is kind of um, prejudgment about topics that should or shouldn't be studied. So how did that kind of zeitgeist play into your decision to of what to do post-grad? Yeah. So the way you described academia is like what I fell in love with and what I thought I was going to get myself into. And it was not that case. Um, I did go back with my, to get my PhD with the intention of going into academia and getting a tenure track position and, and, you know, living my life the rest of the days in the ivory tower and, <laughs> world and you know living the dream yeah uh along the way of course things changed <laughs> as they always do um i got a lot of really crazy advice and i just when i was searching for academic positions i just could not get excited about any single one of them because i kept imagining myself like in these future positions and just like i said like i know myself real well and i was like you're not like I could not get excited about it because I knew I wasn't going to be happy. And a lot of that comes down to the academic like culture. It's quite toxic, um, especially, you know, as a woman um, minority. Uh, but what really turned me off and I think just kind of made me a little crazy was, you know, I was you know, writing um, grants for postdocs and thinking about like how, writing up my research. Um, when you apply to academic jobs, you have to write a research statement and, and describe exactly like what kind of research you're going to do and like what it will bring to the university. And I was just having a really tough time doing that. And I kept getting advice like, you know, stick to the topics that are safe. Um, like you can't do the kind of research you want to do that's like, you know, new or innovative until you've got tenure. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, why on earth would I wait till I'm like 50 or 60 or however long it's going to be till I get tenure? Because um, I went back <laughs> a little bit later than most people. Um, and it's just like, I'm not, my life is short. Like, I don't want to wait around to do the things I want to do just to follow some path. And I have always been like, I guess it's going to be the theme of, of this podcast, but I know myself, like I know what I want. Right. And there in the academics, there's a very, very narrow path of success and what success means. And you're supposed to publish in certain journals. And, you know, I was doing research. I was a little bit kind of newer, more innovative to the IO space, industrial organizational psychology. And I wanted to publish in outside of, industrial organizational psychology journals and outside of management journals because I wanted to talk to a different audience. And to me, success meant that my research was making an impact. And um, if it was being published in these journals that were, you know, top tier or A journals is what we call them, um, then I was basically just speaking to my colleagues. <laughs> and right. I don't, I didn't feel like I was going to make a big impact with the research that I was doing. So you know, that was one of them. And, and just like very specific on like what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to get a job. And there was just some really shady stuff happening. Um, I had worked with uh, this amazing professor who is just, you know, 
brilliant and he not intentionally but fell into uh, this project where he was reviewing several published papers that had um, ended up long story short there was like fraudulent data in it so he contacted some of the journals some of the journals wouldn't like retract it others did which is great I'm happy they did that but he was essentially a whistleblower in our field um, and whistleblowers are not always treated well um, and I had written a paper with him and so some other faculty members advised me to remove the paper that I had written with him off of my resume so I wasn't associated with him and that was to me was just like appalling because I was so proud to have worked with him because he was like you know like really really into scientific integrity and and that's you know my professors at Charlotte they really instilled in me like scientific values and like you know philosophy of science and I just you know there was just a number of like things that added up (laughs) and it's to the point where this isn't the path that I want like I don't want somebody else to tell me what success means um was really also got to me was the way they treat students like I had this one student that come to me and he was um a freshman which was kind of crazy uh because freshmen don't come up and say they're interested in research. He was the first and only one that's ever happened to me. So I knew right away, <laughs> I knew right away he was special. Um, but he yeah. came up to me and said, I, I really want to do some research. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I was an adjunct at the time. And so I contacted a colleague of mine who was in the department. He's like, oh, you know, if I want to hire somebody to do my research, like I can just hire a postdoc and, and have them do it. Like I don't have time to work with an undergrad. And I was like, okay, then. So okay. then I contacted you know department um and there was like there's nobody that you know has a lab opening right now or any research position so um, there's really not much we can do for him um but if you want like the one thing that you could do is take him on um as like an independent research study and be his supervisor or faculty you know supervisor in the project that but but, you know, we suggest, you know, that it's probably not worth your time because you're only going to get paid like, you know, $200 or something really weird amount of money. <laughs> and either yeah. way, I didn't. Know that. $77. That was- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, it was like I've mentored students my entire career and the idea that I was going to get paid for it never crossed my mind and was never like part of the reason why I did those things. So I was just like, wow, things are really not the way I thought they were going to be in academics. And so of course, doing what I do, I took them on anyways, even though I had like eight jobs at the time. And, uh, you know, now he's in a PhD program, which I'm so happy. And and that to me, when he told me he was going to apply to PhD programs, like almost started crying because I was so happy. Like he had never um, even thought about that as like an option for him uh, coming from, you know, a different background and and very similar to mine. Um, I came from an immigrant family um, where, you know, you don't have people around you that have done those things. So it's, it's just different, but that was success to me. And I think there was a number of, events like that where I'm just like okay I know what I want I know what makes me feel good I know what success is to me and it is clearly not aligned with the definition of success in academics 
Um, and so I started really questioning, like, do I want, do I really want to do this? Like, is this the career that I want? Um, and at the same time, I was thinking about my other options, which were going back into the consulting world. And I really didn't want that. Um, but there were some positives and negatives to each side. So in, in the academic world, I got to do the perfect job, you know, exactly what I want to do. Like I got to do research, even though I would have had to do safe research, I was still doing research. Um, but the, the culture and the environment was just really toxic. Stifling. And, yeah, very stifling. Um, and in the corporate or you know consulting world, I had amazing colleagues and friends and the culture was so great, but like, I just got bored with the jobs. And so I just felt like there wasn't a place for me in the world. And I was like, well, if there's no place, I guess I'm going to have to just make it up myself, <laughs> like create some space. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's awesome. It is, but it's also a little bit delusional at the same time. So I'm like, <laughs> a, a one person that like thinks that way. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> but it all kind of started coming together. I was consulting for a venture capital firm at the time and they were looking into doing some, you know, hiring assessments for their portfolio companies. And so in industrial organizational psychology, they, uh, we don't really study entrepreneurship. It's, it's typically studied in the management departments and business schools. So I wasn't exposed to it as much as I probably should have been. So I started doing some digging and I was at the army research Institute at this time. And uh, studying decision making. So I came across this when I came across a statistic that said um, about 97 to 98% of white males get all of the venture funding. Um, I was just like blown away. Like, how is that even possible? Because I came from like the hiring world, you know, building assessments where that would be illegal to like bring in only like two, three percent of like women or minorities and others. And right. <laughs> like, how do they make these decisions? Like, this is so crazy. <laughs> so it's just kind of like started down this path of like trying to understand, like, how do they decide like who gets the funding? Um, and it, everything just started like falling into place, um, you know, with the decision making work. But also I started realizing like, you know, back in like, you know, the fifties and sixties, like we instituted the, um, 1964 civil rights act, um, to protect, um, uh, you know, uh, like marginalized or underrepresented groups like race, gender, age, and that made a big difference. And we also instituted a lot of, um, assessments and other ways to make hiring decisions so that people were, um, choosing candidates based on their qualifications and not, you know, you know, surface level demographic factors or social networks or, you know, which school they went to. Um, and that changed a lot. So I started thinking like, well, a venture capital decision is essentially a hiring decision. It's just much higher stakes. And sometimes it's at the team level instead of the individual level, but the same basic underlying question is there. It's, you know, will this person or people perform the way I need them to in the future such that I get a return on my investment, whether it's a salary or, you know, a few million dollars of, of funds. And I realized like, wow, we have a lot of tools already to like help us out. And it just like the psychometric assessments just weren't being used in that space. So 
I decided like, well, I need to create my own space. I need, there's a problem that needs to be solved. I have the skills and tools and everything to like help address it. Um, I get to do what I want because I'll be an entrepreneur. And so I can kind right. of find my own path. And so when I did start the company, it was very, very important that I found um, co-founders that aligned with my values and we wanted to do it so that science was a huge component of what we do. Um, and that everything we did was um, science-based and that we continue to do science as a form of, you know, innovation to, to really push the boundaries and, and know more about, you know, this space than anybody. So it just all kind of clicked at one point and, I don't think there was ever a point where I was like, this is exactly what I'm going to decide to do. It just sort of happened because I just followed my like instincts and what I like to do and what I found interesting. And I am stubborn and a little bit rebellious. So it was just like, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Nice. And not listen to anyone. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah. That's I love how that I energy. That's starting that. Yeah. That's so great. Uh, I guess to wind to wind it back, you mentioned um, your I guess your parents or grandparents immigrated to the U.S. from, from elsewhere. Just also on like a zeitgeist question, but all of the I guess more awareness of like questions of identity and you know like people have signs up like about all these different groups and how they you know stand with them. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that? Like, do you interact with that at all? Like, is it something like, oh, like, that's interesting? Or is it like, oh, this is service level? Or, you know, how do you kind of interact with that change in, in I guess, more general American society? And and also, do you think it is substantive and makes a difference? Or is it kind of just lip service? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a lot of thoughts. So let's, let's see how I, which tangent I decide to go down. But, um. I mean, it's all very personal to me. Um, mm. You know, I grew up and my mom came from Mexico when she was 16. Um, and I have like, I don't even remember how many family members I have so many now. <laughs> like, I grew up with, <laughs> my mom has um, eight brothers and sisters and, you know, there nice. were cousins. And it was just a very strong Mexican culture that I grew up in, um, in a very white neighborhood Um, and you know, that was part of the reason why, you know, that story I told earlier about that student, like he came from a background where he didn't have family members that had gone to college or, um, lived in the U S and I remember when I first started, like, I just felt like I was kind of in the dark, just stumbling around. And the only way I knew how to navigate was based on who I was and what I wanted, not like what society tells me or what you know, it was a traditional path or what my parents thought I should do or anything like that. So I guess I was supposed, I was lucky in that, in that sense that I was just able to, Mm. that was really, you know, the only way I knew how to do things was just do them the way I wanted. There was no one being like, you better be a doctor or a lawyer, Nikki. Right. (laughs) When I look back and I'm like, some of my students like tell me what their parents are telling them. I'm just like, wow, I have the greatest parents in the whole world. (laughs) They're just like, do what makes you happy and we'll figure out a way to support you um, along the way. But it is partially the reason why, I mean, probably like a really large reason why I started Blackhawk was because I started to see that some of these opportunities, you know, we're 20, I think I was, it was like 2017, 2018 when I first started. 
um, digging into the venture capital decision-making process. And I was like, how is this still happening? Like, this right. is so crazy to me. Um, yeah, wild. And it's not okay, like at all. Yeah. Like it's completely unacceptable. And, you know, my mom, she was an entrepreneur when she first came here and started a nonprofit that um, is called Compañeros en Salud, which is basically partners in health. So she would help um, provide uh, Hispanics and other immigrants with information about how to get, you know, health insurance and how to get taken care of, um, you know, from oh, like awesome. a health perspective. And actually, that's it's still existing to this day. So Sick. so proud of her and awesome. But it just, you know, that part of me is like always there. Like I always want to stand with others who have, you know, different experiences. And um, I like that the language and, and the things are changing. It's changed, though, you know, as a human being, like sometimes well, all the time, humans just resist change. It's just natural. <laughs> you know, we prefer, like, stability. Um, and so I do, I have seen some changes in, like, the university and teaching students and just kind of the cultural, like, norms. Um, and I think it's awesome. It just, I feel so dumb sometimes when I'm like, oh, my God, like, I don't know <laughs> what the language is these days. <laughs> right, 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 right. I have to, like, relearn everything. Right. Pull out your dictionary, like, fuck, what what is it now? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it's great, but it's just so funny. You know, one of the things I teach my students um, is, like, understanding cognitive bias, especially, like, in the workplace, um, because it creates a lot of problems. And I go real deep into, like, the, you know, foundations of how does bias even arise in the first place. And um, when I grew up, this is – for all those people listening that are my age, um, they know the episode of Say by the Bell where, where Jesse is like <laughs> um, <laughs> so surprised and she's taking, uh, you know, like pills, cough, caffeine pills or something. So anyways, I, I make my students watch this Say by the Bell episode and I was like, I was a kid when I was watching this and it was so normal to me. And I never thought anything of it. And there are so many like comments in there, like that are super sexist and like women being put in their place and they need to be like housewives. And, mm. you know, the men were in control of the women, like telling them what to do. And my students are like, what are you making us watch? This is insane. Like, You grew right. up with this. Like, how did you not like, that wasn't totally... that long ago. No. And I was like, you know, yeah. that was normal. Like, you know, like any, it, it just, you grow up with all these things around you being normal and your brain takes all that information and prints it and it's stuck there. So to unlearn those things is really challenging um, and hard. And, you know, just saying things like, obviously I'm a, a woman in leadership and I support women in, in leadership positions, but I find myself sometimes when I talk about leaders, like just saying he or him or, you know, like referring to as a male, because when, you know, growing up, like, most leaders were male (laughs) and uh, I have to catch myself now. Like I I hear myself saying it, but like after I say it and it's just because my brain is so conditioned to think that way, even though like I know my values and like personally, like I don't believe that, but my brain is, you know, unconscious has, you know, had so many experiences and information um, that has basically instilled that in my head that, leaders equal men (laughs) and so it's just you know challenging sometimes to try to unlearn everything we've learned and and it's a great 
I think place that we are, that there are big changes happening. Um, it's just for sure challenging um, and embarrassing that, you know, <laughs> you don't even notice them sometimes because of the way you grew up or, you know, your background. Yeah. That's interesting. It makes me more empathetic for even older people. Like <laughs> I'm thinking like 50, 50 plus, mm-hmm. you know, that's, and even that like 60 plus, you know, each gen- each decade probably had just like a number of norms that were changed. Yeah. I always yeah. think about that because I'm like, I don't want to be like, I remember judging like older professors and be like, I can't believe they just said that. Oh my God. They must be like so right. out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like i swear i'm not out of touch i'm trying really hard but <laughs> yeah that's funny yeah, yeah. I, I had a mind-blowing moment i was actually in college was at gw made friends with uh, a guy one summer who i didn't know otherwise and i guess he was an all-boy school and then he didn't have any sisters and so when he got to he was telling me when he got to college was when he realized that girls are smart Oh my god and i was like what dude like what the like how did that happen how did you not know that like <laughs> but it made me think like i have a smart sister and a smart mom who are confident and you know don't take any shit so i guess to me it was normal but then i was like dude how but i guess if that's the environment you're in like and you don't see and all your buddies are like oh girls are dumb like and you're like yeah girls are dumb <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, they just learn what they hear, and people yeah. are social beings. And if somebody else says it, that's how they're going to learn because we but it, learn by watching yeah. others. It ties into the VC thing too, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. I could be completely wrong, but my perception of like traditional VC is like the good old boys, Harvard, Yale. My father road <laughs> road for pen, my boy. You know, like that kind of thing. And if like that's the circles you grew up in, again, the same thing can perpetuate. Um, yeah. But yeah so uh, for the VC thing, like, is it maybe because there it's all private money, so they're not governed by the same regulations that say other private employers are? Or how, how no, does that work? It, I think it's because the EOC guidelines, the Equal um, Employment Opportunity Commission, they put in place the Civil Rights Act in 1964. They um, there are a certain number of employees that have to exist inside an organization before those laws apply. And when you have a startup, Mm. it's so early on. That's like, you can't say that, you know, 50% of your culture has to be, you know, like women, because what if you only have two people, (laughs) there are men and that's just how you start (laughs) out. There are some like realities to the situation. um, But a lot of it is what you're saying, though. I think it is just tradition. Like, um, it's changed a lot over the last five years. I will say that. But like, let's go back to like, you know, the '90s. Like, venture capital was you had to come from an Ivy League school. Um, you had to basically come from generational wealth. Um, you had to know someone else who was in venture capital. Um, and so it was a very, very tight knit exclusive community that basically if you didn't come from like Stanford, Harvard, um, you were not (laughs) invited into the circle. Um, and when I was reading a lot of books written by, you know, venture capitalists talking about the work they do, it's actually quite hard to find information about how they make decisions, but I managed to 
you know, find a little bit here and there and put all the pieces together. But what I learned was that most of them would only take meetings with entrepreneurs if they had a warm introduction, meaning mm-hmm. that they knew somebody that that knew that person. So they were getting introduced instead of just like a cold call on the internet that they um, looked for, you know, previous experience. So they would, you know, had to be an entrepreneur before. So it's like, there's only so, you know, so many people yeah. that have done this before. So it was like the same people over and over and they had to kind of be in the right social network, come from the right schools, know the right people. Um, and, and it makes sense a little bit, you know, as human beings, we trust people that are within our circle, right? So it's a bigger risk if you are putting money into somebody you don't know or don't have any ties with. So, you know, there is some common sense behind why it was done that way um, early on, but it's not okay now, you know, as things grew and, you know, the opportunities need to be about everybody should have that opportunity, you know, to to start their own company and and to have the resources. And it's much, much harder. um, And I'll speak for myself to start a company when you don't have that generational wealth. Um, You don't have like, you know, the, the risk is just so much higher when you know that you don't have somebody to throw around, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars when you need it. (laughs) So it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, we really need to open these opportunities and these doors. And I think right around the same time, I wasn't the only one that was seeing this. Um, A lot of venture capital firms, like newer models of how it's done have like um, been born and, you know, that are focused only on women or um, black and brown founders, for example, is one organization that's um, done a really great job and has seen grow uh, in DC. Here's 1863 ventures where they focus on kind of those, underrepresented or marginalized groups. Um, so there is a large number of um, smaller venture capital firms emerging that is changing the culture and the dynamics of how money is being um, allotted. But it's going to take a while. I think I've seen the statistics the last few years in a row and the needle has not moved <laughs> at all. Mm. So we've got a long way to yeah. go. Yeah, because the... Established funds are probably very insulated, you know, they're like, ha, like, you know, to like the little ones, right? It's like any business, you have to kind of be a threat for them to notice, right? Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. And I guess with your, so your organization provides a personality assessment and I might miss a few of the steps, but the flow chart or like the logical reasoning is that personality affects performance, which affects success mm-hmm. or projected success. Um, and so how have you, how have you, has it gone for your company and kind of breaking into industry, you know, are the kind of legacy players interested in this or is it more the newer school that's kind of engaging with your, your work? Um, definitely the newer school. Um, right. Right. <laughs> Me, other organizations that align with our values, um, you know, diversity is huge for us. Uh, my co-founder is also a woman and um, we just, you know, have a passion around that. So we, we tend to find, you know, strategic partners and customers and clients that have those same values. Um, we So what's really fun and interesting, we use personality assessments in the hiring space because 
you can't assess somebody that on the job that hasn't actually done anything on the job yet. So per, like you mentioned, personality drives performance. So it is an indicator of how well they will do in the future. It gives us insight and ability to predict. It's not perfect, but it's better than, you know, just tossing a coin or it's better uh, than like our dad smoked cigars together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and they, they're quite predictive. They, you know, I think about like 80% of fortune 500 companies now are using them. Um, what's really cool about startups. So we, we built the personality assessment on that same model, but with startups, they're actually already performing and, you know, getting work done. So we can actually assess the performance directly. Um, so we built a second assessment to um, actually measure, you know, entrepreneurship performance in the current organization. So they can actually base it instead of basing it on what we are trying to predict the actual um, behavior instead, um, which is really cool because it's not really something we can do with hiring um, just because individuals, you know, take like a year or so to you know, ramp up to performance, but with startups are already doing it. So it's, Sweet. we've got more room. And so the, the personality tasks we tend to use for uh, startups that are more early growth that haven't yet um, that are still kind of like, in that idea phase and, and growing and building the product development. And there's not much to assess, but when you get into that later growth phase, we have tools that you can actually just like, all right, let's just see how they're doing. And you know, how does their leadership fare out and you know, how the teams work together. Is it a healthy, you know, operation in terms of how they're collaborating and working together. So, yeah, so we have two, two assessments um, that we use for those purposes. I hope you are enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. To get involved in the conversation, you can send me an email, contact at bronouveau.com or find me on Instagram at bronouveaupod. Please share this episode out with someone who you think will enjoy it and you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube and search Bro Nouveau Podcast. Enjoy. Sweet. Yeah, thank you for sharing the, the first one with me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, the personality test. Um, we actually started designing that for venture capital firms to make decisions, but we got so much interest from you know solopreneurs or young like firms and because when you're an entrepreneur there isn't you don't have a manager or boss or a mentor or advisor that's like there with you daily watching how you perform and so you have to be you have to take accountability for growing yourself and mm. most entrepreneurs want to grow right that's why they're in those roles they're, they're challenging themselves but there's it's really difficult to know how or where to develop when you don't have any like benchmarks or somebody telling you like, Hey, you could use some, you know, uh, you know, help in this area or guidance in this area. So we built the assessment for the venture capitals, but then we um, developed a second like report, which is the one you saw to help entrepreneurs do that. Like almost like DIY, you know, yeah. leadership development. <laughs> yeah. I shared it with my uh, 
my COO and our HR awesome. um, partner. Cause yeah, I was like, I mean, this is first and it's a, you know, it's about five years in. So, but still a startup in some ways. And, uh, yeah, it's also felt, uh, it was really cool actually, because I, my plan is entrepreneurship for myself. And so it felt like a very like affirming, like, Oh, the universe gave me this, you know, like <laughs> via the podcast. So that it was cool. And yeah, so I just did like the first pass, but I, I haven't gone to the workbook yet to actually dig into it. But one of the things I noticed interesting, so it's like these dimensions of personality that are correlated with aspects of performance and uh, my, from my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is actually learned in my class. I'm so proud. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. It, one of them was like self-centeredness, or like it wasn't selfishness, wasn't Self- the word, but self-centricity was actually one of the dimensions of a positive. I think maybe leadership or one of the traits. Mm-hmm. So what's that? What is that interaction? Yeah, you know, this is really interesting because a lot of personality tests they just assume like. The higher, the better, the more, the better, um, where ours really takes a more realistic look and for, you know, positive and negative, like it's more complex, but it is more like every personality trait that you have can be a strength or a weakness. It just depends on the situation. Um, so self-centricity, if you're in a team and you're only thinking about yourself and your own goals, that could be detrimental with an entrepreneur and in a leadership position, like they need a lot of that, you know, like they need to be able to really, (laughs) I can't remember who, where I read this quote, something about basically like the entrepreneur is like the best combination of like being delusional and confident (laughs) because you have to be able to think (laughs) that no one else can do. Um, You do need to have that like, really like deep confidence like i know what i'm doing like i can do this because if you don't believe that you can do it then you're not going to be able to do it because our beliefs drive behavior so it's like so important um so self-centricity it's like one of those uh like you have to manage it appropriately that's what we always talk to entrepreneurs about is like know when to kind of mute it and know when to leverage it um and that goes with any like trait you know at all um I I'm very futuristic. Like I'm constantly thinking in the future. Like that's just where my brain is all the time. And we have some um, measures on the assessment that look at time orientation. And um, you know, some people they spend their time thinking about the past and ruminating. And sometimes I even forget the past exists, (laughs) you know, so (laughs) actually pretty detrimental in decision-making because you know, right. when you're just making as a leader, you need to understand like what's happened in the past. What have we done? What should we not do again? Um, how did we get here? And so I have to like consciously remind myself, like, it's not just about the future. Like you have to understand the past. And That's I, yeah, I spent the like pandemic learning, like digging into history, like all the way back to like ancient Roman, ancient Greece. Cause I've never been interested in the past. So I was like, all right, this is something that you need to <laughs> dig right. into. It's like a foundational knowledge that is useful. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we even use it for ourselves. I I think about mine all the time in in different areas where I need to grow and learn and, you know, evolve. That's awesome. Yeah, because I had a uh, guest on who actually was an interesting point. Like 
he's asking a question about reading. Like, a lot of people want to read more. He's a big reader. And he's like, well, the whole premise you, you're asking is wrong because like, people like want to read for it to have information because that's cool or because it's helpful at a cocktail party. He's like, I read to gain knowledge and, or to gain wisdom rather and to like make inferences from the past to help me interpret my life today. He's like, so, you know, changing the perspective of like not just reading to be like book smart, but actually to like apply that knowledge in your real life. And that was, I was like, oh my God, you're so right. That's like a huge difference. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like 100%. I love that. For sure. Okay, so we have time for one more question. Um, So one of the things also I learned in school was, so the ideas of validity and reliability in these types of uh, assessments. So validity being to make sure that the test is measuring what it tends to measure and reliability meaning that it can be reused over and over again and Mm -hmm. is actually measuring it accurately. Um, so how did you go about making those assessments with your own tests? You know, what differentiates Blackhawks assessment from any schmuck who just, you know, makes a buyer's brig or something? <laughs> well, uh, I am a total nerd about concert validity and test validity. And so I, when we were developing, I was like, we are going hundred percent by the books and doing this like gold standard. Um, (laughs) yeah. And so we almost did like a, a meta meta analysis, (laughs) like looking at everything that's been done in the entrepreneurship space, looking at all the different scientific articles. I think we went over a thousand articles. Like our tech report is, it got so big that I couldn't even open it on my computer. (laughs) I get a new computer. We just like went through everything and said, okay, instead of creating a brand new test and just like testing it, Let's make sure we're measuring constructs that have already been demonstrated to predict entrepreneurship success and also have been um, studied well enough that we can um, develop an, a measurement that's valid already. Like it's basically like we were building on already validated assessments and, and concepts mm. and hypotheses. And, and then we t- double tested it basically like afterwards. So the foundation we built it on was essentially like, super strong like we we just went and said what has been done before and let's not redo it and let's you know look at the themes and and across everything um and there's always this uh science practice gap you know people complain that you know science Mm -hmm. is behind practice is always ahead um practice doesn't use science and and so there's always like a gap and so we wanted to make sure that we close that gap. So after we did all the scientific research, we still did like, I mean, I think we did about two years worth of research before we felt comfortable with the assessment, but we um, listened to podcasts by entrepreneurs, read books about entrepreneurs, read books written by entrepreneurs, uh, articles. We talked, we interviewed people. um, We put our frameworks in front of, you know, subject matter experts um, to make sure there wasn't anything like missing or that, you know, practice and have something, you know, brand new that the science hadn't captured yet. Um, and so we kind of took this dual approach of like, let's focus and, and create like the best scientific foundation, but then also let's like take the like practical validity and make sure that it makes sense in, in the world that we live in today. Um, so I don't think most test companies do that. Um take that extra step but we were like we've got to do it better than you know even the literature tells us to do it so we followed the uh 
the there's a guidelines by the um, American Psychological Association, the National Education um, of Measurement, I think Council or something like that, NREM. And then there's three basically large bodies of scientific institutions that wrote what they call the um, standards for assessing and developing tests. Um, and so that was kind of our Bible, if you will, <laughs> and, and nice. groundwork and make sure that like everything we do is um, designed and, and done in the way that we've studied and learned over the last century about how to do these things. Awesome. Yeah, I may have said that wrong too, but reliability is it can be done over and over again and gets mm-hmm. the results. No, you were right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well. Uh, cool, Dr. Blacksmith. Thank you so much for for your time. Um, where can people check out your work, or do you have a blog, or you know? Yeah, we like have. That? Uh, we put out a lot of blogs to just help with that, like self development, and try to put out as much information as we can on um, it's medium dot com backslash. Blackhawk with an E at the end. Um, we also have some stuff on our website. Uh, we'll put this podcast on there so people can listen to it, um, along with all the other ones that we do. Um, on Blackhawk with an E at the end, dot IO. Um, and we also have, you know, a LinkedIn and an Instagram page. Um, and pretty much uh, welcome any of your audience if they're interested to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And I love talking about psychology. Obviously, we've on almost an hour and i could talk more <laughs> about this all day. <laughs> so yeah if anyone has any questions or wants to talk or just geek out um yeah i'm open to it sweet thank you so much thank you